Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. Today, I am absolutely thrilled and honored to share with you an interview I conducted with Michael White. Michael White is the award-winning activist who co-created Occupy Wall Street, a global social movement, while an editor of Adbusters magazine. His essays and interviews on the future protest have been published in publications including the New York Times and the Guardian Weekly. Widely recognized as a pioneer of social movement creation, Michael White has been profiled by the New Yorker and Esquire has named him one of the most influential young thinkers alive today. He directs Boutique Activist Consultancy, a think tank specializing in impossible campaigns. I spoke with Micah remotely from his home in Oregon, and the conversation we had was not only timely, considering the state of the nation, but in the interview, Micah thoughtfully addresses the shortcomings of of the mass mobilizations which are occurring today and offers ideas on how protesters and activists can more effectively channel their passion, time, and energy. In a discussion that delves into the aftermath of the Women's March on Washington, expounds upon the idea of rural activism and mental environmentalism, while also discussing the role of climate change in the future of protest, Michael White offers a profusion of insight that isn't simply profound, but ultimately inspiring and downright hopeful. So, without further ado, Michael White. Again, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. I've, uh, I've been inspired by your passion for activism and for social change for some time now, and uh, it means a great deal to be able to garner some insight from you, um, especially amid this heightened climate of uh, political en- engagement going on right now. So thank you for joining us across the margin. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So uh, as I alluded to, it seems to me an ideal time to talk uh, with you as there appears to be a blossoming of active protest occurring throughout the country and being familiar with so much of your work and having read uh, The End of Protest, which is, which is an amazing book, by the way, bravo. Um, I have to ask you how you feel about the mass mobilizations that are occurring in response to uh, President Trump's actions um, especially in light of many of your standpoints on the shortcomings of this brand of mobilizations. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about the state of protest with all that's happening in the country right now? Yeah. 
Well, you know, I think that um, I probably have a little bit more of a different view than <laughs> than most people in the movement. I think yeah. that it's, of course, on the one hand, isn't it isn't it wonderful that so many people are are mobilizing? But on the other hand, I think that you know it's really necessary for us to take a kind of detachment from the excitement and ask ourselves, well, where are we going, and is this going to get us there? And I think that the really important thing to understand is that. Everything we've seen up until now, every form of protest that we've seen up until now, will not get us what we want. These form, these these tactics are not working, and they will not work because they're because. And this is the most important thing to understand as an activist. Underlying every time we protest, what we're what we're actually doing is we're testing a theory of social change. Okay, mm, yeah. and the, and the theory of social change that that we are well, that we're testing when we march in the streets is. That somehow our elected representatives will have to listen to us if we can get enough people to to march, and if they're largely nonviolent, they have a unified message. Somehow they'll have to listen to us. Okay, that whole somehow they have to listen to us is not true. It's not true. Yeah, and and that's the really that's the really dangerous moment we're in, which is that we can keep celebrating ourselves for getting lots of people to protest in the streets, but we will lose the overall war. We will not achieve the social change that we want, and so. That's the kind of dangerous moment we're in. We have to stop doing these behaviors if we want to actually achieve the deeper goal that we're going for. Yeah, and I can see how that is uh, that is an unpopular take because, I mean, I know a lot of people um, who are more inspired than they've ever been. And we saw the numbers recently in some of these marches. But um, I actually, you know, and I think a lot of my ideas are sourced from, you know, reading your book recently. But I'm concerned that this, uh, this could be what they want. And, um, you know, to quote you, it's a nominally... Democratic governments tolerate protests because elected representatives no longer feel compelled to heed protests. Um, what you write is the end of protest is not the absence of protest. Uh, it's the proliferation of ineffective protests that are more like a ritualized performance of children than a mature revolutionary change. Um, but do, do you feel that, that this could be uh, kind of part of a more sinister master plan that they they could use our passion against us in a way. Is this, is this what they want? Is that weird to think? Well, I don't I mean, I think we should, um, we should open our minds to what wide as possible. I think that what, so on the one hand, I think that what's going on is that there's a kind of, um, you know, a, na- a naivete. Okay. There's a, there's a basically within the activist community. One of the things that we like to do is we like to celebrate the youth. We like to celebrate people who have never protested before. And we mm-hmm. like to say, Look, we're winning precisely because the people who make up our crowds have never done this before. But, but okay, so on the one hand, there's a naivete because these people who have never done this before obviously are falling for the same trap that someone like myself who's been protesting since he's 13. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have been to many marches. I have been arrested for blocking traffic. I have been yeah. to Palestine. I have done this all this whole thing. And so it's, it's very important for us to stop kind of celebrating the fact that we're getting people who've never protested before to protest. But then I think there's a second element, which is that there are forces in America that know that ineffective protest is the best way for them to stay in power. Yes. And some of the people who's, who are calling for protests are part of those forces. There are people, I call them the protest industry. There are people mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. who use the rhetoric of revolutionary protest in order to prevent the possibility of revolutionary protest. And and this is the really hard thing to wrap our minds around, which is that, and I think a really clear example, I mean, I'm not trying to accuse specifically the organizers of the Women's March, mm-hmm. but let's just like, let's just think about this. 
Okay, they have four million people going to the streets. Four million people. Now, there's not enough police officers in America to stop four million people from doing anything that they might want. Yeah. You could basically break into the White House and like literally set up a homeless encampment in the White House mm-hmm. with four million people. But what do the organizers call for after the march, after four million people? They tell people to start sending postcards. Yeah. This yeah. is like intentionally designed to destroy any momentum that that may have created. If they had said to these four million people, now we're coming back next week, and this time we're going to like, you know, surround the White House and demand that Trump listen, that would have been something. But to say, let's go home and let's send some postcards, it's like, it's like intentional, okay? Yeah. Um, I think we need to be a little bit more, more, um, a little bit more intelligent as activists and start to realize there are forces that do not want a revolution. And there are forces that realize the best way to stop a revolution is to use the language of protest. True. So, so I mean, in, in a way, as you're saying, you could almost playing right into their hands. And, and, and you know, it, it is, I guess the question, what we were looking at, uh, you know, that march was inspiring. It is great to see all these people out there. But it was, the question was, what what's going to happen the next day? You know, where, where do we go from here? And, and I guess we haven't seen the results in that. And, and so it's, uh, it's it, we need change. And that's why your book was so inspiring in so many ways. So is, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of these, you know, very, very commonplace and, and uh, undemanding forms of po- uh, protest, uh, you know, the online petitions and stuff. The same thing, right? I mean, it's, I mean, I, I, I see this kind of as a cop-out, but, uh, you know, and I've also heard you describe it as um, insid- insidious, and, and I was hoping you could speak on that some. Uh, it's, I mean, that's that's also you know not very tactful way to get this done. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that you know, again, it comes back to the theory of social change, and I think mm-hmm. that you know what we what, when we have these kind of online clicktivism, online petitions, what we're basically doing is we're is what we're saying is if we could just get enough people to sign their name to this to this yeah. statement somehow it'll manifest some higher form of sovereignty and and i think that like it, what you what you articulate that you kind of realize it's absurd i mean there's no one there's no one in government who's like oh yeah once that post gets 100,000 likes <laughs> it's, it's then over. i'm definitely going to listen to I'm, it I'm i mean done. come on it's silly <laughs> yeah absolutely you know? um, so so we have to start like asking ourselves well why are we doing these behaviors mm-hmm. you know that's the important thing is why are we doing these behaviors yeah and I, I guess as you also bring that home a lot. Um, it's you know kind of a trial and error, and, and that's what your book does such a great job of, of going over protest in the past. Um, I, I did when I was thinking about the women's march. You did come upon that point in your book. Um, it, well, that your book was released in March of 2016, right? So about a year ago. Or so. Yeah. Um, you specifically yeah. speak about how you felt that women were on the brink of rising up against a male culture that's been, uh, you know poisoned by porn and video games and then um and and that a global female awakening could happen where the greatest social movement of the future will be the fight for global matriarchy a post-feminist social uh movement to transfer sovereignty to super you know a super national government led by a woman um and you know seeing out in that day it almost felt like your vision you know was beginning to materialize in a bit did you feel that way did i mean you almost saw that i know the results weren't the same but you know almost foresaw a little bit of that yeah, I do. I think that I do. I think that if I were to get like, you know, still put my bet on where the next social uprising is going to come, as I would say, women, I don't think yeah. that I yeah. think that the women's the women's march was just a kind of first manifestation of that. I think that women are going to prove smarter than I don't think that I don't think that women <laughs> are going to just. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be like, 
Like, I mean, right now, they still don't, I think a lot of people don't get it because it's only been like a week. And yeah. so it's like, well, maybe something's going to happen. But very quickly, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna be like, wait, nothing happened. What mm-hmm. happened? You know, and I think that, um, you know, maybe Donald Trump will do something that like insults women or, do, yeah. you know, I think that I think that women are still the future. And I think I would still keep pushing in that direction. But um, but, you know, I, I did detect one thing I did not expect. It was, it was really surprising for me. And I realized all of a sudden I was like. Oh, this is why I think I finally understood why identity politics is really problematic is because, you know, I wrote this thing for The Guardian about the Women's March. They got like 200,000 shares and 500,000 views. And I and a lot of like, you know, a small portion of the, of the readers, though, would be like women who would say, like, don't t- you're a man. Don't tell me what to do. Uh, we can handle this. Yes. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, no, like they're praying. They prey on people's egotism because they think all of a sudden. Well, we're the they, you know the women start puffing up their chest, saying, "Well, we did the biggest march, and we don't need to lose to anyone." And they don't learn from the experiences of other activists. Yeah. I think that's one of the dangers: is that um, we do need it, ha- it can be women led, but women need to really consult with and learn from the failures of other movements that have happened recently. Absolutely, you know, regardless of sex, people who have been out there in the streets doing it, it's 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 a shame that was a thing because we're all, you know you're all we're all in this together in a ways, and it's a shame that mm-hmm. that came of that. Um, but what do you believe? Um, you know what? What would be a path? Uh, um, you know, to to real change for female leaders that they could, you know, utilize to gain the power they deserve. It, it's is it uh, is it forming some sort of political party, running for office? What I mean is there? Do you have ideas on, on how they could you know kind of work with that momentum? Yeah, I mean, so I like. I think basically what's going on is that there's like two visions of populism, right? Yeah. So, like, right now, we have one vision of populism, which is a kind of authoritarian populism. It's behind these, like, these strong men, like Trump and Putin and the, mm-hmm. the president of the Philippines. He, keeps, he wants to kill drug users and stuff. Yeah. And, like, yeah. and that's one vision of populism, which is a kind of, like, you know, authoritarian populism. But there's another vision of populism, which is the idea that, like, that kind of Occupy Wall Street and what's emerging in Spain with, with Podemos, the five-star movement in Italy, which is, like, that the, that the people themselves will decide that we won't have single charismatic leaders, but instead the movement somehow will make decisions amongst itself. And I yeah. think that what's what's holding back the the revolutionary forces in America is that we, quite frankly, don't have that other vision of populism. We only have one vision of populism, and so of course, yeah, the, everyone everyone is tired of the establishment. So when you only have one anti-establishment force, though Donald Trump, yeah. of course he's winning. And so the, the thing I would be focusing on if, as an activist is we got to figure out – basically the, the thing that's holding us back is we don't know how to govern as a social movement. We don't mm-hmm. know how to make complex decisions as a social movement. Yeah. We know how to get millions of people into the streets with only like six weeks planning, but we don't know how to get those millions of people to get together and decide on anything together. Yeah, to even and until so you can dec- – yeah, or even vote. Like even literally vote. until Something you can do simple. that, you yeah. can't govern. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's – you know, it's it's – yeah, I saw you wrote the uh, the left is not revolutionary, does not want to govern. The real revolutions now, unfortunately, is the right. And uh, you wrote yeah. Trump, uh, he doesn't sit around whining, rather he's able to govern. He just does. And and that's scary. But like on the other, you also uh, uh, pointed out the kind of the good news. And I, I, I like thinking about this, that, that before Trump's victory, it was widely assumed that a uh, that a candidate without without the backing of the establishment cannot possibly win a presidential election. We know that's not the case now. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. That's it's, yeah. It's, that's you know, there's some there's some hope in, in in that at least. So, 
Um, totally, yeah. What do you feel uh, about this current administration in the ways that, you know, I feel I've been doing a little, maybe too much reading. I'm kind of scaring, psyching myself out a little bit. And I, I think most of it is, is, is uh, you know, appropriate. But um, am I right in feeling there's, there's something increasingly ominous about this administration? Or is it just kind of, you know, politics as usual and I'm just in dire opposition to the administration um, and those who support it right now? This, it, it just feels different. I, mean, I was wondering how, if you felt anything like that. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that uh, what we've what we've experienced is a revolution. Um, yes. And so we have now experienced a revolution and we have we will now enter into a very dark chapter in, in mm. American history, a mm. chapter that other countries around the world have experienced. I mean, mm. we just saw a coup in Turkey. OK, yeah. so and we saw with the Arab Spring, we saw a revolution in Egypt that had a counter revolution. Yeah. And we saw that the that the counter revolution was worse than the revolution. So right now, what we have had, what we have in America is a situation where basically as one as one. I mean, they're being open about it. One congressman said it's a constitutional crisis. Yeah. So there's a question right now as to whether or not. Is there going to be a coup against Trump? Basically, is there going to be a coup against Trump, or is a Trump going to somehow destroy democracy? Is our, yeah. who's going to destroy democracy? That's basically it. <laughs> Who brings you know? it down? And that's a what side? Him it's really or horrible. Us. Yeah, exactly. And in, in either way, democracy gets destroyed. So we're in a super dark uh, moment right now, and I think that um, that it's it's you know we're heading towards a war. We're heading towards a possible coup situation. Yeah. Yep. I think it, I think it's really bad. All right. Yeah, I figured. I mean, there was some, you know, there's some hope that maybe you talked me off a ledge, but I, I, I could not agree more. It just, it's, it's, it's. I've never heard it described as you just described it, though, as there was just a revolution. That's, that's pretty poignant because there absolutely was in some ways, and it, it does lead us down um, a pretty dark path, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So there's something. It, I don't mean to switch gears. Uh, I just, yeah, I want to get to a certain amount of things. Uh, Something that you've advocated for is uh, rural activism. Um, it's a, a fascinating idea to, my, idea to me that you aren't just championing, but you're, uh, you're authentically living it. And that is, um, you've recently moved to Oregon, right? To uh, Nehalem? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Nehalem, Oregon. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so in essence, by doing that, you're practicing what you preach in, uh, in this idea of rural protest. Could you, I don't, I don't know if a lot of our listeners would know uh, about rural, rural protests. Could you uh, explain a little bit about the uh, the idea? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Thank you. I think one of the, one of the important things I think about activism is mm-hmm. that you can't just, you have to, so you have to create a theory of social change, but you also, you test it out on your own. Yeah. And so, you know, after Occupy Wall Street, after the collapse of Occupy Wall Street, my wife and I, we basically dealt with that whole trauma by moving to the most beautiful place we'd ever been, which is the Oregon coast. Yeah. And and I got and I got here about four years ago and all of a sudden I realized that, you know, it's really challenging to live here because it, it, it changes your perception of what activism is. Like you can't just block traffic in, in a town. I mean, my town only has 280 people, so you can't yeah. just like block traffic. It makes no sense. Your neighbors and your like, you know, possible future constituents. That's that's that. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, and so. But what you do start to realize is that they do have, like, they have city councils, they have a mayor, you know, and so all of a sudden you realize that if 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 you were able to gain control of rural city councils and rural mayorships, mm-hmm. you could actually do positive things. You could pass local ordinances that say, 
you know, no child shall be hungry in our city and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and the thing about rural areas is they also have, they're very resource rich. Like our town has 280 voters, mm-hmm. but it has a $700,000 budget surplus oh, because wow. we own a huge amount of, of timber. So, so there's a, so, you know, there's a weird kind of, they're resource rich and they can, they can do positive things, but, you know, so I tested it out by running for mayor and everything and right. I lost, I, I mean, I got 20% of the vote, which is still, it's 20, 20 times better than the Green Party. It's 10 times better than uh, Duray, famous Black must, Lives Matter activist have, did in, in Baltimore. Yeah. And you must've been looked at but uh, it, as sort of an outsider too, getting that sort of uh, response is pretty impressive. It is. I mean, I think it's impressive. It's total outsider. And they mm-hmm. ran a whole campaign. I mean, it was a good it was a wonderful test because you have to like it's one thing to theorize what, about what would happen to move into a small town and talk about revolution. Yeah. It's to actually find out. So what I found out is what they did is they they spread the most horrible possible lies about me. Oh, you really? know, they said that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. The, the, the first first they claimed that I wanted to become mayor so I could force everyone to drink out of the river rather than <laughs> our current water supply. And then people wow. were like, but why would you want to drink out of the river? river? It's dirty. And I'd be like, but I don't want to drink out of the river. That's just like garbage they made up. Yeah. And then to really drive it home, they started a, a rumor that I'm a Satanist, oh my God. That, I, that I worship Satan. Wow. <laughs> um, and wow. then they launched a group called Keep the Hail the Hail. So, oh. you know, so, but that's, but, once you realize, okay, that's how they fight back. Yeah. Then, then you're just, you know, next time you're smarter. You know, it was only the first time. So I think activism, activists are very bad at um, winning elections. We're very good at, you know, getting lots of people to march. So I think we need sure. to get better at winning elections. And it was a, it was a first attempt, and it was interesting. And you know, we'll learn more. Absolutely. That's 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 that's. Uh, so I mean, should more, should I guess I guess we're in the learning process of this, but I. I, I I heard a lot of people saying, you know, in that whole swath of the middle of the country being red that, you know, maybe maybe if um, people from, you know, you know, whether you're on the left or from blue states uh, start start moving to these red states to to kind of change the culture uh, from within and to influence local elections. That's that's that 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 is a progressive idea. It's it's, it's and, and that's kind of what you're living. That's pretty intense, man. Um, yeah. What? I, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I would just add one thing. What I yeah, would what please. I would say is that you know you if I I would do that if I were an urban activist. Yeah. Let's say I, you know if I were an urban activist who owned a house, for example, I think I would definitely think about selling my house. Uh-huh. I mean, you can buy um, you could buy five houses in Halem, Oregon, where I live, for the price of one house in Berkeley, California, for example. Yeah. So or, you know you so that's what I would be doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's a progressive it's, it's definitely uh I just love the idea because it's 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 you know, it's it's it seems so inclusive to me. You know, there's so much of this, you know, the 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 coast of our countries are blue, the middle's red and there doesn't seem to be, you know, enough intermingling and and I think the more people do get to know each other and get to understand our differences, the the better we all are off. So, uh I applaud that effort is what I'm saying and it's it's good to learn more about it. Um a chapter of your book that really did strike me was the one about mental environmentalism, um, which means, in your words, working with the assumption that there is a connection between the level of pollution in our minds and the prevalence of pollution in the world. Um, I just think so often about this idea, about the corruptive nature of uh, the capitalist society, a world where we all are kind of like assaulted with advertisements and and 
uh, misdirections on the regular, and it's scary to me how, how this has all been kind of normalized, too. So, uh, you know, it's it just seems like it's part of the plan uh, in a lot of ways. Consume more, think less. So I'm, uh, I'm curious how you battle this, how, if you had any advice on how to confront or ignore even the, the onslaught of manipulations and how we can learn to fight on a more spiritual level. I, I just think there's a real highbrow way to think about it. Get your, get your mind right, and then we can think about things uh, on, the, on bigger levels. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the, the concept of mental environmentalism, it really comes from um, Adbusters Magazine, where I used to be an editor. And so, you know, I think that the, the, the core thing about it is that, you know, that there's, the way to think about it is that, you know, it wasn't until, like, basically... You know, it really wasn't until like the 20th century that people started to acknowledge that there were carcinogenic things that we could be putting into our water, for example, mm-hmm. which is kind of, it sounds it sounds ridiculous now, but it's true. You, you know, people didn't really understand that they that they could be putting. Um, you know, it was basically Rachel Carson's Silent Spring that yeah. really got this idea across that that we could be poisoning ourselves with the with the chemicals that we're putting oh, into I'll our environment, when our I, physical environment. When I read that in college, it blew my mind open. Actually, it, it struck me when you mentioned that. In the book, because that was an eye-opening moment for so many people, it was one of the moments where it was an aha moment for me as well. Yeah, but so and, and so now there's saying, a, there's, yeah. go on. There's like a parallel thing, which is mm-hmm. like basically that that our that our mental environment can also be polluted, and we have to think about well, what are those pollutants? And I think that for a long time, the number one pollutant was was advertising. But I think now with with the Trump election, we're seeing that there, that the other kind of pollutant is this whole fake news thing. Yeah. Like that's. What, that's a whole other thing that seems to be even more dangerous and more insidious than, than advertising because, I mean, what, what, what they're doing is that, you know, a lot of what you, basically how you see the world and what you see as possible in that world defines how you will behave mm-hmm. and what you will strive towards. So, so, you know, if you can control people's assumptions about what is going to happen in the future, then you really control how they live their lives day to day. And advertising used to try to convince us that um, if we work and spend a lot of money, then we'll be happy. And I think that now this whole fake news thing is telling a much more insidious and dark story that's like, you know, if we get rid of the, the, the brown people, and yeah. if we, you know, and if we give all power to strong men and, uh, you know, but it's the same kind of mechanism, which is it messes with how we see the world. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's so the dangerous about it is it's so micro targeted, like, you know, like we used to just all watch the same television station, but now everyone's getting different micro targeting on their Facebook feed. So I might hang out with someone and have no idea that they're being just assaulted day after day with with fake news about Trump because it because I'm not being targeted in that way. So it's super it's super insidious and it's happening in people's bedrooms and then on their computers and their phones and and it's very hard to tell what's happening here. Yeah, I mean, in certain ways, so many of us, at least with advertising, it almost feels like a more overt, obvious. Uh, you know, you can mm-hmm. see what's happening with this. I mean, people are literally living different realities, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's it's, and then it just keeps getting reinforced, reinforced. I mean, if you were to look at my social media feeds, I mean, everybody in this nation is against Trump, and that is right. most certainly not the case. So it's <laughs> it's, it's it's really yeah. intense how 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 and that can like that 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 will rile people up, and it it affects you in ways I don't think we fully understand, but. Like you were saying with Rachel's uh, uh, Carson, and like that point where we realized there was at least at least this fake news is a discussion now. At least at least we're talking mm. about it. We definitely need to. I don't, it, it only seems like you know the administration now wants to to make it worse by trying to break down 
you know, the way people see certain journalism as, as, as a threat and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, want to redirect them to, to, to their choices of, of, you know, news. But it's, the whole thing is real scary. Fake news is a dire threat, I believe, as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's also, though, it's important to have a kind of historical context because, you know, like well, if you go I, back and you read, well, I think like this whole, I mean, people, the thing is, if you go back and like read Plato, like he talks about how we all live in our own little like hole in the ground, our own cave. So yeah. it's basically like we've always been, we've always been inhabiting different realities. Yeah. I think that it's just that it's gotten so uh, much worse, you know? So it's, it's, again, it's one of these things where there's not going to be an easy fix. It's just, it's really tough. It's really tough. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I mean, we, even, you know, we did that whole thing of reality. You can not only live in a certain reality, you can create your own reality. It's, it's, it, there's, some right. de- there's some depth to that one. Um, uh, that kind of, in some ways, leads me to, to you know, we were talking about climate some. Because um, one thing you talk about is uh, kind of, you know, things that can lead to a revolution, you know, you know, you, that one thing that could aid in, in a a protest becoming a revolution is, is a spark and like a historical moment of some kind. And, um, I almost feel that, uh, climate change could maybe be this. Do you believe that, that, you know, climate change being a real and pending concern could help us focus more and, and hasten our need for social change. It's what, what do you think about climate change's role in all this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely possible. I think that, um, like social movements are basically created out of three elements. They're created out of a first, a contagious mood, yeah. then a kind of new, new tactic. And then the third is kind of like a willing historical moment. So I think that, you know, I think that people tend to, on the left, we tend to like think that that social movements involve having like the right idea or the right target. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more about um, spreading a certain mood, like of losing your fear and stuff like that, and that people then coalesce around a specific um, rational thing. So I think that um, women could serve as that rational basis. Mm-hmm. I think that climate change could serve as that rational basis. Income inequality, like it's very hard to predict specifically what it will be. I think these are all possibilities. I think the thing that's good about climate change is that it's, 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 it's the same thing I like about women, which is that it's universal. Like yeah. there's women around the world and also we are all live on the same planet. So, um, it's, it, and I think that what we need to do is, is, is focus on building like a global planetary movement. So, yeah. um, I like, I like universal, universal causes for sure. Absolutely. You also talked a little bit about like the conglomeration of causes. Um, and how that could be used to kind of heighten the movement where just, you know, not just, you know, the, the women's rights people, but also, um, you know, you put them in with income inequality, the environment, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, kind of uh, putting those all social, the, the, all those ideas together. There's power in that. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing is, is that as long as you're orienting towards trying to capture sovereignty, then yeah. your movement can be like a movement of movements, you know, because because when you get into power, if you're able to get into power, then, yeah, you can you can you can pass legislation or sign executive orders around all these different issues, as we're now seeing with Donald Trump. And I think that that's why it's not really important to have. I mean, Donald Trump's movement has lots of different causes, too. The sure. key thing, though, is that, you know, if you're not orienting towards actually capturing sovereignty, then it just doesn't work. You know? yeah. so I, I agree. I don't think you need to have, I don't think the movement has to be about one thing. I just think it has to be like kind of pointing in one direction. Yeah. And sovereignty being the end goal of it. 
Right. Yeah. Um, the idea of climate change being a spark, as I was kind of mentioning, um, it does harken back to what we were talking about with mental environmentalism a little bit. As to me, as to move forward, uh, you actually wrote environmentalism must end its obsession with uh, and our obsession with materialism. So in that way, it's related and. I just I think of the idea of an awakening of minds, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, I, I I think a lot about where we're going and technology and stuff. But it makes me think about future generations and the hope that lies there. Um, do you see hope at all in the younger generations coming up that that maybe have uh, more progressive ideas to grow up with and and can help push out some of these outdated ideas that are being put into policy by old white men in our country? Do you, do you do you have a lot of hope in younger generations? I mean, I do. Yeah. I think that on the one hand, like there's some um, people have said that every revolution takes three generations. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, we might be we might be Occupy might be the middle generation. Mm-hmm. And then, the you know, like I have a one and a half year old son. So maybe yeah. he's the third generation that actually completes the revolution. Yeah, but I also Jefferson think that it's say that quote of yours, the generation which commences a revolution rarely, I mean, uh, rarely finishes it. Is that yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and and that would help people understand why, you know, our parents' generation started the 60s and, and our our children's generation will, will finish the revolution. But I also think that we do need to get, I mean, as I get older, you know, I mean, I benefited from this as a young activist, but I think that as I get older, I start to realize that we do need to get away from this, this what I call basically a neocracy, which is this idea that that we, we overprivilege the young, we overemphasize uh, the young and, the, and and how great it, I mean, I think it goes back to our culture. Like yeah. we, we think the young people are so beautiful and we also think the young people protesting is so revolutionary. Yeah. And I think that obviously every revolution is going to involve young people, but young people also don't have that kind of historical uh, vision that allows them to not make the same mistakes repeatedly. And I think that one of the reasons why the French Revolution succeeded um, is because they had a failed revolution, and then you know Trotsky and Lenin learned from that failed revolution, and then when the revolution starts in 1917, they race back to Russia, and the first thing that Lenin says is, "Okay, enough of the old Bolsheviks. Now we have a new Bolshevik," and all the Bolsheviks are like, "What are you talking about? Like old Bolsheviks?" And Lenin's like, "Yeah, the previous ideas that I put forward are no longer valid, and here's the new ideas. Get with the program." Yeah, and I think that that's that's really the attitude, which is that. We do need a kind of um, we need we need to understand that people who have gone through this before are going to be. I mean, I, I'm reluctant to say this because I also it's very difficult balance. Yeah. You know, I, I like celebrating the young, and I don't want to overly privilege people who have been through it before because they also we also have an activist culture that anyone who's like you know over 40 years old and still an activist i get a little bit suspicious you yeah. know <laughs> yeah. because just knowing how difficult it has been for me to get to the age of 34 mm-hmm. as an activist i'm like how are you still here yeah, so um, yeah it's tricky it's very tricky mm-hmm. but i do think that we need to stop kind of just believing that somehow the 19 year olds of the world are going to like govern us into a new world i think that it, you know donald trump's 70 years old you know like yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, there's I'm a bit... in that question and that hope. It's just, yeah, I just, I've always just caught myself thinking about it. Like it's just, you know, I, some of these ideas that I that I feel are so damaging. I, I tend to think of them dying out. But that that is that is kind of a false hope there. And, but um, no, I don't know if it's false. I think it's good, but yeah. it's not. It's not, it's not enough. Complete. You know, it's not enough. Exactly. You said yeah. you mentioned, and, and I loved what you just said there about Lenin and stuff. But uh, uh, 
there are there are examples of some, and you mentioned one earlier. I think you Podemus. Uh, there are examples of revolutions in very modern times that have been successful. Um, what Iceland's Pirate Party and Italy's Five Star Movement. What have, what have they done? Um, and I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but uh, what have they done to be so successful? What what did they do? I think that's the crux of uh, 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 yeah. something we can learn from here. I think the number one thing they've done is that they've they've convinced large numbers of people that the path to power is through a social movement that can win elections. Yeah. I think that once you're able to do that, then you get a whole different like you get a, you get more serious like. You know, I had the privilege of going to Italy, and I met with the with the co-founders of the Five Star Movement, oh, wow. and they invited me to kind of to talk at um, one of their rallies. And so I went to this rally. It was like December; it was freezing cold out, yeah. and they still had forty thousand people standing in the freezing cold for a political rally about how they're going to like win elections in Europe and stuff. And you're just like, oh, this is a, this is a, this is amazing. You know, you go to a rally, you go to a march in America, and everyone gets up there and yells about how bad it is, and then, like, we all go home. Yeah. Meanwhile, these people are, like, winning, they're freaking winning elections. You know, like, they just won the election in Rome, like, the mayorship in Rome. And it's like, so I think part of it is just kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shift where people start to, people within, activists need to start understanding that the only way forward is to figure out how to win elections or win yeah. wars. And so yes. um, once you start convincing large numbers of people of that, then then it changes the whole tenor of the movement, and I think things will get a lot more serious. Yeah, and I think serious is the word. It sounds like there's a deeper commitment there. You, you talked about the activists yes. here just going and, and kind of, you know, proud of themselves and walk away. They're, they're not walking away. They're getting deeply involved, and and um, and that's the difference. Um, I remember when I uh, when I first reached out to you, I was I was kind of I, I thanked you for kind of putting me on to this quote I use often uh, by Audre Lord: "The master's tools will never dismantle the." The master's house, which I just, I just, I always go to because I just think the system is also so broken. So we were, you did just mention how we have to win wars or win elections, but uh, I just, you know, I can't help thinking when I think of that quote that even having the right people in places of power, how that just might not be enough, even you know, with a system set up that seems so faulty, starting with like the you know electoral college all the way up to you know the decision that we made one time to have one person ruling over in some ways, 318 million now. It's just, the whole thing seems outdated and, and, and needs a full overhaul. And uh, I just, it just seems like such an inner, insurmountable thing. It just, it's, it's, it's pretty daunting, really. But like, yeah, so, you know, we, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm too pessimistic here, aren't I? Like it's, we need to start at one thing and get, get people in the right spots and move from there, right? <laughs> no, no, it is daunting. No, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that it's, what it is is that so the left because so the the left when it got taken over by anti-revolutionaries yeah. the idea that it kind of embraced is well if we could just get good people into power everything will be fine okay yeah. that's 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 the essence of the progressive left that's the essence of anti-revolutionary thinking yeah. that's i think that well, yeah. that's the wrong approach what you need to do this gets back to why trump is a revolutionary and why steve bannon is a, is a leninist is the idea that if you want to grab control, if you want to, if you want to smash the state, you have to first grab control of the state. That's that's the mm -hmm. first thing you have to do. Yeah. And so it's not about electing the right people or playing within the system. It's about realizing that that the only way. I mean, think about it this way: we just had an election in our country where there's serious doubts about the legitimacy of the election. Very yeah. serious doubts. Mm -hmm. But the ritual is so powerful 
they have not, there's no force, there's no mechanism for calling for a new election. Yeah. Right? It's so powerful that we could have serious doubts about whether or not it was real. Yeah. And still, the, the results, that, that's what happened. That's how powerful the ritual yeah, is. Calling so, for a new election doesn't even seem to be something that would even come close to coming onto the table at all. Which is crazy. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Because, but even at the same time, you have the highest levels of our intelligence committee. Like, I mean, the highest levels of our government have said our election is possibly not legitimate. Congress people have said yes. this is not a legitimate election. Okay, so that's how insane <laughs> the situation is. So yes. what I'm saying is, if you're a revolutionary, you got to see that. You got to say, oh. So I seem to win elections. It doesn't even matter if I win it legitimately. I just have to win it, so and then I can there. smash the state. Get there. Right. Yes. It's time to get there. Yeah. So that's our challenge is how to get there. Um, I love all that you just said there. Um, I, it, it's, it, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to lean away from my pessimistic approach there because towards the end of, end of protest, um, there's – it's very hopeful. Your book, it, it's, it's very hopeful. That I, um, I read that final message, that kind of that call to action for a spiritual insurrection often. I love it. Um, and there's a line I love that, that states, to win this war, we must split the atom metaphorically and unleash the greatest, create, the greatest creative force, which is the wild human spirit. That, that, that line really gives me hope and, and helps me believe in this turnaround. You even mentioned that you see um, a weakness in our adversaries' reliance on temporal power, and this, this also is kind of hopeful. And, uh, are, there, are there any other... Uh, Positives you can see in the failings of those in power. Any any other vulnerabilities that, that can be exploited? <laughs> any you know? I just I loved all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's two big things that give me hope. Number one uh-huh. is that if you look at throughout history, revolutions always occur when they seem least likely. So whenever you feel down, then you're actually closest to victory. Like uh-huh. if you look at the yeah, this is true. It's a weird thing. So if you look at like the um, you know the the, the weeks and months before the Arab Spring or before Occupy Wall Street, if you had talked to activists at that time, I mean, I talked to lots of activists at that time, and they were completely depressed. They thought, we, you know, we, we at Adbusters, we, we emailed David Graeber and we're like, can you write an article about whether or not a revolution is possible in, in America? And his article was like, nope, not possible. <laughs> and then, you know, like two months later, Occupy Wall Street starts. Yeah, absolutely. So, the very point in which you feel discouraged is the very point in which you're going to succeed Amazing. or at least trigger something. And when you feel super confident, that's when you're in trouble. That's what uh, all these activists don't understand is yeah. that they feel like they're winning and that's when they're losing. When they lose, when they feel like they're losing, they're about to win. Excellent point. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that um, the other thing, this is the thing that Trump doesn't understand. And this is why ultimately Trump is going to lose. And this is the thing that fascists don't understand is, is that, you know, is that strength is a liability. Okay, we now know through military history that the weak are the ones who are winning wars more and more frequently. Think about that. The weak are the ones who are winning wars. And not just the slightly weak, but the dramatically weaker. People, forces that have 10 times or fewer uh, resources, they win wars more and more frequently in human history. And so Donald Trump's uh, um, obsession with strength actually makes him weaker. Makes him more vulnerable, yeah. He is. And so I think that I think that, you know, uh, you know, the, you, can't, you can't get psyched out. I mean, Hitler used to always say, oh, the thousand year Reich and how his government was going to be around for a thousand years. Yeah, yeah right. He, <laughs> he lost the war. Yeah. And it's the same with Trump. The guy, he, he's going to end up like Mussolini. He's going to be hanging from a lamppost. That's what happened to Mussolini. Mussolini was all tough. And the man ended up hanging from a lamppost. It's the same thing with Donald Trump if he keeps going down this, this path. So, you know, you just got to kind of like, 
you got to have a really big historical perspective and mm-hmm. not get psyched out and realize that like we're, we're probably closer to victory than we think. And these people who think they're so strong, they're actually like the ones who are the losers. And everything's going to probably it's going to be a struggle. It's adversity. But, you know, we're probably going to win. You know, honestly, that's awesome. That, that's awesome. That's awesome to hear. And especially that that bravado, that 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 bluster that uh, that he touts can, can all can also be his undoing. That that that, that makes me happy. Of course. Um, yeah. So I also, you know, kind of feel like the takeaway of your book and this conversation is, uh, you know, like you said, to win wars. I mean, to to win, we have to win wars or win elections. We need more innovation in protests. And the word we haven't used is uh, creativity. How, how how creativity is absolutely crucial. Because um, I noticed in 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 your for the, the when you open your book, the you dedicated uh, the book to your wife and. And those that never protest the same way twice. I love that because it's, it's, it's about trial and error and trying new things. So uh, any other advice before I let you go the, that you can offer uh, young protesters fired up around this country? A lot, a lot of people are ready to act. And I think, you know, they, they, it's, we got to we got and, and that's why what you do is so important. We got to figure out how to best use these energies and this, this, this desire that's burning in us. Any, any, anything else you got for us? But you, yeah, I mean, I think I'd say the last, the last, <laughs> the last thing I'll, the last thing I'll say is, you know, like one of the, one of the other really huge um, myths that activists believe, which we need to get rid of, is that, that we tend to believe that we're more powerful when we work in coalitions. Yeah, and I, and I would really say this is not true. There has been a study that shows that um, groups who worked in coalitions were not more successful than than individual activists or that worked alone. And that's the experience of Occupy Wall Street. When I when we were at Adbusters, we didn't coalition with anyone. We just put out the idea. Uh, the people who the woman who called for the women's march, she didn't she didn't ask anyone. She just put it out. Uh-huh. So I think as activists, what we should be doing is we need to just if you have an idea about something that that should be done, just try it. You know, try it. Don't mm-hmm. wait for other people to do it. Don't try to get other people to sign on to it because everyone like before Occupy Wall Street, everyone thought it was a bad idea. So yep. you have to just kind of um, you just have to try it and see if it takes off. And then if it doesn't, then try something new. So. Don't 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 join these massive coalitions. These these things are the death of, of revolutions. Instead, try to spark something something new. Awesome. So go out there, go out there, and, and do it yourself. DIY. Yeah, uh, totally. Awesome. Hey, Micah, uh, I can't thank you enough for talking with us for your insight here. Um, your 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 words, uh, your book has inspired me. I know you've inspired uh, a whole bunch of future revolutionaries. And um, and the way in which you dissect and analyze the methods and successes and failures and protests is uh it's impressive and it's important and it really i think it's going to help us um immensely moving forward so thank you for this and for that and for being here thank you it's great talking to you awesome thank you again
Flash mobs all over. If you like the song, you can go to ICan'tKeepQuiet.org.